I didn't listen to those. I had been forewarned about them from the person who sent us the screams of a child yelling, this is hell. And then they sent the audio files and I did not want to hear them until Alex played them on air. I wanted to be as surprised as you are. Alex, you want to give anybody some background on that or should we not? Uh, Good job, little lames out there. (laughs) Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Mark, your kid is now a regular part of the introduction. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? About eight years ago, when I was walking on the beach in Uptown, I saw a woman sprinting after a dog she was running after on the beach. And she was screaming at the dog had gotten off the leash, and it ran to the shoreline and found a decomposing uh, fish corpse Mm -hmm. and peed all over it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then rolled all over it. Cool. Some weeks you're the dog, some weeks you're the fish, and some weeks you're the lady. I think I'm the lady and the fish. <laughs> Was your dog rolling in fish this weekend by chance? Uh, no. I mean, just like life and metaphorically. <laughs> I know, but I was, you have a dog, and I'm concerned that that will happen. This weekend I took cold showers all weekend. And it wasn't to get my mind off sex. In fact, the idea that a cold shower can address your... Randiness. That was debunked back in a 1993 study at the UK's Thrombosis Research Institute, where researchers found cold water exposure increases testosterone in men, presumably as part of our flight or fight response to perceived danger. So cold water leads us to perceive there is a danger. Testosterone increases, and instead of overcoming your sexual desire, you actually kicked it into overdrive. And I'll be telling you why I was taking cold showers in this morning's breaking news. But on today's show, so you've come up with a new revolutionary way, an alternative governing platform that puts community well-being first. And you've even figured out ways in which to implement direct democracy that allows all voices, especially the marginalized, to finally be heard. The whole experience brings the community closer together than ever, meeting one another face-to-face in assemblies and meetings that have a direct impact on the lives of you and your fellow citizens. Of course, things aren't perfect, but after five years of being able to work collectively, progress, significant progress, was being made. Then a global pandemic hits, and suddenly you can't politically organize anymore as everyone is locked away in quarantine, and all of that personal physical contact that was so important to your transformative organizing, it's no longer possible. 
So what happens when alternative concepts like municipalism are confronted with a virus that undermines its ability to get people to work together collectively? And what happens if the limits imposed on political organizing due to the pandemic are not merely temporary and instead continue on into the future under a state of exception or emergency? We'll get back to the fascinating world of Barcelona and Camus, the municipalist citizen platform currently governing Barcelona, with the return of Kate Shea Baird to This Is Hell. Kate wrote the Roar magazine article, Lessons from the Pandemic for the Municipalists in Spain. The pandemic has damaged municipalism in Barcelona, but it has strengthened the municipalist hypothesis itself. Our strength must be rooted in togetherness. Kate works as a political advisor at the province of Barcelona. She currently serves on the executive committee of Barcelona and Camus, where she is responsible for communication and participation. Find out more about Kate at katesheabaird.wordpress.com. Follow Kate on Twitter at KateSB and follow Barcelona and Camus online on Twitter at BCENCAMUS. B C E N C O M U. This is Kate's third appearance on This Is Hell. Kate was last on back in December of 2016. We talked with her about an article she had written with Steve Hughes that was posted at the medium.com website entitled America needs a network of rebel cities to stand up to Trump. So yes, our question from hell might be about the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is homemade ginger juice. All right. The article titled, Feel Better with These Seven Healthy Hangover Cures at bostonmagazine.com. Writer Asia Bradley reports, if you feel nauseous after drinking, ginger juice will help. Ginger can help settle your stomach and help regulate your digestive tract. Mm. Another story Asia links to is at africabites.com, which offers a homemade ginger juice recipe and states, ginger juice is well known for its anti-inflammatory properties, but it also acts as a pain reliever. Oh, got a toothache? Keep a small chunk of ginger between your teeth and uh, cheek. And let the natural juices do their work. Ooh. I think it's a meat tenderizer. Yeah. I don't know if that's a great idea to keep yeah. it in your mouth. You can even massage your skin with a mixture of ginger juice and olive oil as a remedy for back pain. Mm. Oh, damn, Chuck. <laughs> two in one. That makes this week's hangover and maybe back pain cure homemade ginger juice. That actually sounds pretty good. I want to try some homemade ginger juice. Lately, our hangover cures have been oddly believable. This is not the media. This is hell. Breaking news, yet more stuff is breaking all around us in our home, still under the virus and under quarantine. Yeah, we're still in phase one at my place. First to break, uh, first to break back in uh, March was the microwave, which we can live without quite easily. Next was the furnace thermostat, but now with the summer having started, we don't need to address heat until the fall, and we certainly can't afford central air, so we don't own that. And the next wave of the virus, you know, that's the, when the fall hits, we'll probably need heat again when the next wave of the virus hits. So we can wait till then. After the microwave and furnace went, it was the oven. The gas top on the stove still works, but the electrics in the oven are shot, which means we only can cook on the stovetop. Sure, it's a, a nuisance, but we can live with that too. Yeah, it's only annoying that during the pandemic, the light in our bath in our bedroom went out as well and the only way to fix the light after we investigate it is to completely take apart the entire fixture including the fan to get at the part that's broken so yeah it's just a fan now no longer a light but again easy to adapt to 
just turn on a freaking lamp, so I, I, I could tolerate that. That's when the roof started leaking, and living on the top floor with a leaking roof is not ideal, especially with the huge amounts of rainfall we've had over the past few months here in Chicago. So it's not like the roof is falling in, but uh, only a few leaks, which is understandable as it's 15 years old, but it's definitely something that needs to be addressed or parts of the roof could start falling off onto the public. That's when we had this Saturday morning's breaking news. I woke up, went to the tap to the tap to get a glass of water, and the tap aspirated. It coughed out air while spitting water, and I immediately knew that the water heater, our furnace guy, was marveling at for still functioning after more than 40 years of service. The water heater had failed. The bottom that was completely rusted through finally broke, just like the furnace guy had warned. Sure enough, I went downstairs, saw water pouring from the heater, and I could hear the gas hissing from the thoroughly soaked pilot, which was struggling to light. I could put up with losing the microwave, the furnace, the oven, our, our bedroom light, the leaking roof. I could tolerate our home literally collapsing around us. Right before the virus, our toilet went out, and most of the locks broke on our home. I can set Aside, all those as white people problems, as problems of privilege, knowing full well that there are plenty of people who live without microwaves and furnaces and ovens and bedrooms, let alone bedroom lights, and without roofs, let alone with those that leak and have no access to clean, safe water of any kind, not to mention a shower or one that provides hot water. But not being able to take a hot shower for me really sucks. I've been waking up with a shower as long as I can remember, and it has become a regular part of my pre-show routine to getting myself awake, alert, and sort my thoughts for that day's show. I know it's I'm just a creature of habit, but all that is is a dog whistle for obsessive-compulsive disorder. But taking a cold shower, that, that just makes me angry. And worse, bringing a pot of hot water, or bring a pot of water to a boil so I can add cold water to it. And then ladling that bath over my head makes me feel like an 1800s prospector fetching water so I can draw a bath in my tub. So if I sound a little off today, it's because immediately following the show, I'm going to go back to my place to meet with a roofer and a water heater service guy so we can get the roof patch today before the next storm and have hot water by this afternoon and hopefully before tomorrow's show. All that's left to break are the dishwasher, refrigerator, and coffee maker. And the next thing that blows, I think I'm going to blow too. Of course, there was far more important breaking news this weekend. After last weekend's Tulsa campaign rally, when President Trump went straight up Nazi again by dehumanizing certain sections of the population when he referred to them as animals, which is always the calling card of those ready and willing to commit violence against targeted populations. You know, the kind of talk that leads to a holocaust. Trump followed that ubermensch line of rhetoric with this weekend's retweet of his supporters in Florida at a rally driving around in golf courts, rebellious revolutionary golf courts, yelling, white power. Trump says he did not hear the white power part when he viewed the video, and seeing as how that's the most important and prominent sound and vision in the video, I'm starting to think Trump didn't even watch the video before retweeting. 
So what's with President Trump and going full-blown Nazi on the weekends? I mean, sure, every day he shows hints of his authoritarianism, whiffs of his fascism, even racist dog whistles. But the all-in Nazi stuff seems to only take place over the weekends. I know Trump's not in some weekend warrior National Guard of white privilege because he spews this stuff all of the time. But any guesses on what's happening with Trump when he really Hitlers it out on... Saturdays and Sundays, usually you hide news you don't want to get into the news cycle by doing what's known as a news dump on Friday nights, Saturday mornings, or any time during the weekend to avoid it being covered by the time this story's gonna gone stale by Monday and gone stale for the next news cycle. It's not like Trump's trying to hide his reactionary ways, and if he is, he's doing a horrible job of it. Is it because Stephen Don't Call Me Herman Garibald's Miller did not hang around this weekend or doesn't hang around on weekends, so he's not there to tell Trump, dude, you gotta see this guy in Florida wearing a MAGA hat, driving a golf cart, and yelling white power. It's awesome, but do not share it online. Or is it the yawning chasm of a lack of distractions and entertainment over the weekend now that we cannot have professional sports here in the U.S.? Sure, Trump could have come out in March and said... If you want football this fall, stay indoors for eight weeks, go out as little as possible. If you do wear a mask, if you do go outside, wear a mask and socially distance. And every conservative Republican would have done as they were told to the letter because after God, family and flag, it's all football with them. Who knows what next weekend will bring? Maybe Trump will announce a final solution. Why not? He already shares images of concentration camp prisoner insignias. Why not list all the bad hombres by name like the mayor of St. Louis did when she went on TV and named police violence protesters and gave out their home addresses? Yeah, that happened this weekend too. All I know is, with all these fascist upticks happening every weekend with Trump, I'm ready for some football, which promotes imperialism and settler colonialism with its militaristic and nationalist spectacles before and during every game. She's proving yet again. This is hell coming up. What happens to direct democracy when it is confronted with a global pandemic? We'll also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests. Noam Chomsky called This is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly. Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Barcelona and Camus has been governing Spain's second-largest municipality and the largest city in Catalan, where it is that province's capital, under a governing system known as municipalism since 2015. The system puts the community well-being first and foremost in decision-making practices, which embraces the collectivity of direct democracy. So what happens when that togetherness is impossible under quarantine and social distancing during a global pandemic? Here to help guide us through municipalism, Barcelona and Camus, what organizing is like under coronavirus, and what the future of politics may look like due to what pol whatever political legacy the pathogen leaves behind. Kate Shea Baird returns to This Is Hell. Kate wrote the Roar magazine article, Lessons from the Pandemic to the for the Municipalists in Spain. Kate works as a political advisor at the province of Barcelona. She currently serves on the executive committee of Barcelona and Camus, the citizen platform currently governing Barcelona, where she is responsible for communications and participation. You can follow Kate on Twitter at KateSB, and you can find out more about her at her website, KateShayBaird.wordpress.com. Welcome back to This is Hell, Kate. 
Hi, Chuck. Good afternoon from Barcelona. It's great to have you back on the show. I've been wanting to have you back on so bad lately, especially to get a follow-up on what's going on with Barcelona and Camus. And it's been three and a half years since we've had you on the show. This is Kate's third appearance on This Is Hell. She was last on back in December of 2016. We talked with her about an article she had written with Steve Hughes that was posted at TheMedium.com entitled, America Needs a Network of Rebel Cities to Stand Up to Trump, which just leads me to the very first question. And here we are now back in December 2016. How much do you think the kind of alternative that you see maybe just beginning or playing out with the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or the Capitol Hill Occupy protest area, whatever the people are calling it, Chaz or Chop, how much do you see even that beginnings of a kind of what might be or could become a municipalist movement? How much is even that a challenge to uh, a power structure like the Trump administration? Well, I'd say that actually um, Steve and I weren't too wrong with what we said back in, um, when was it? November 2017? uh, 2016, December 2016. See how prescient you are? Look (laughs) at that. Wow. Uh, No, because I mean, even uh, at institutional level, cities in the States have been really, you know, on the forefront of protecting immigrants and, um, and, and, and women and all sorts of people who are uh, victims of, of Trump's policies. So, um, but obviously not all of those mayors, they might be progressives, but they're not necessarily what we would consider as municipalists in that they have the institutional part of power, but the part of the kind of um, participatory, participatory decision-making and social movements isn't hasn't always been there. But I think that's what's really exciting about what's happening now. Uh, the examples that you gave is that we're really starting to see that articulation of community organization and municipal governments and that kind of positive tension both ways. So uh, it's really it's really exciting. Why do you think that scares President Trump and the right so much? Because if you uh, thank God you're not here in the United States watching cable news TV. But if you were, you would be watching on CNN or MSNBC news about the coronavirus and every hour on Fox News, starting with what is happening in the Capitol Hill autonomous zone in a very, very fearful way. And that's not being covered at all by CNN or MSNBC. And it should be, but it's not being covered by them. Why do you think or what does it say about either the Trump administration or the right that this kind of autonomous zone could be so frightening to them? I think because it changes the rules of the game, right? When when one thing is people standing for election within the system and putting forward a, a progressive platform. Another thing is when people start questioning the very systems of power start to organize and start to really um, create new um, forms of institutionality. So I think they can see the danger there. And I think they can also see the danger in the types of uh, coalitions that are being built that aren't just about, as far as I can see from, I'm I'm a bit far away, so I feel reticent to to judge. But as far as I can see, there are coalitions that are being built that aren't just about one issue, but the racial inequality issue, the economic injustice, uh, the gender issue, and all of those coalitions coming together uh, have the potential to build majorities that um, have the, the capacity to really change the game. You write that in 2016, the political scientist and now Barcelona deputy mayor, 
Juan Subirats, I know I'm pronouncing that horribly, published <laughs> a, a book called The Power of Proximity on the Virtues of Municipal Politics. The title summed up the basic premise of municipalism, that the local scale allows opportunities for physical togetherness that have a unique transformative power. In short, municipalism harnesses our ability to meet face-to-face in order to collectivize our individual problems, take joint decisions on the issues that affect us, and widen the distribution of power. How does that differ from how Barcelona operated prior to municipalism? How does representative or parliamentary democracy differ from municipalism? So I think one thing is uh, progressive municipal government. Um, And although the administration before us was actually a conservative, traditionally Barcelona's government has been progressive. Um, But the the municipalist idea is about that it's not just enough to have a, a progressive manifesto, win an election, and then from the top down, implement new, more progressive policies. The idea of municipalism is changing the way that decisions are made and empowering citizens in their neighborhoods to actually directly take decisions or or participate in in decision making. So so that's kind of the, the main difference. And the other difference I would say is that we have to think of municipalism in contrast to other kind of strategies that the left is using nowadays, like um, left populism at a national level, which is much more about having a kind of strong candidate and then uh, centralized messaging and mass communication and a kind of uh, the, the platforms can be very radical, but often the, the participation of, um, of citizens is more based on on campaigning an election. And then once the election is is won, then that's the end of the role of, of the 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 grassroots. To you, what explains the political imagination to conceive of municipalism? Is it just a matter of the right conditions? Because here in the United States, uh, we were being told over and over again that our political imagination is stunted by the you know, implementation of neoliberalism. So to you, what explains this ability to have the political imagination in Spain? Is it just a matter of the correct conditions? And what are those conditions that we need to have that kind of political imagination? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. And I've, I've thought a lot about why municipalism, municipalism springs up in, in some places and, and not in others. I think in Spain, first of all, there's a historical tradition of municipalism, uh, particularly the anarcho-syndicalists in Catalonia in the 1930s. And that memory is very much still alive of of popular organization at at local level. But also in the States, you have examples um, of municipalism in the... What are they called? The town town halls on the on in the East Coast states? Is right. that what they called town halls? Town hall meetings, um, yeah. Right. And so you do have examples. Um and I think the other thing is how much power uh uh local governments have, because in a lot of countries they say to me, right, we municipalism sounds great, but our local governments have been stripped of all of their powers and resources. So it there's nothing we can do from that level of government. Um, and I think the other one is, uh, which is also key, is the organization of, of social movements in a particular town or city. Barcelona has a really rich and strong network of cooperatives, of social movements, uh, and it has for years. And, and those are the kind of spaces that you need 
when you win the election to be on the outside helping to push forward that agenda and um, and doing the inside outside strategy. So uh, I'd say those are kind of three three things that really make the difference. Whenever there is any kind of alternative movement here in the States, it's often painted within the media as something that needs to have a certain set of demands, a certain set of bullet point like PowerPoint presentation. Like this is these are the steps that we're going to go through with Occupy. They want to know what the demands were, who the leaders were, the step by step process of whatever revolution or transformation that they were hoping for. Is the current situation in Barcelona what those supporting municipalism expected, planned, and wanted? Wow, that's that's a big question. Um, because it's just so so often it just seems like, uh, you know, uh, when we're talking about political imagination, it gets stunted by the media saying, unless you know exactly how this revolution is going to play out for your entire future, then we don't want to hear about it. Right. I mean, I guess... Um, part of the thing that you have to take into account in the case of Barcelona is that um, for the first term of four years and the last, uh, the first year of the second term, which is we're in now, uh, we've been in a minority government. So that's already like your first um, kind of limit on, on what you might have wanted to do if you had a majority on the city council. Um and then the other thing is that we were very ambitious with our demands and we, for example, there's a, a migrant detention center just out, well, in Barcelona um, that we from the very first stage said that we wanted to close, but it's actually run by the, the Spanish government. So we've been can campaigning from that from City Hall. We've looked for legal loopholes to close it temporarily for health and safety reasons. It's currently closed now because of COVID. Um, and so that's something that, you know, some will say, okay, you said you wanted to close it and you haven't closed it. Um, so in that sense, it's a, a disappointment. But then on the, on the other hand, we've done everything in our power to kind of move that agenda forward from from City Hall. So, um, and then the other thing is that part of the agenda is just doing things differently. So like bringing in transparency to end the corruption in City Hall, limiting the salaries of our mayor and our electeds, limiting their term, um, the amount of terms they can be in power so that, you know, we can avoid that creation of a professionalized political class um, that's disconnected from from ordinary people's lives. Uh, and bringing in these participatory processes, we were going to do our first participatory budget this year, but it's been stopped by COVID. Um, and we're also bringing in a, um, I guess, I'm not sure what you call it in the States, like a, a citizen, like a referendum, city referendum kind of um, system uh, from next year as well. So a lot of those things aren't about particular demands. They're just about changing the way that decisions are taken. So you also examine our uh, understanding of municipalism when the physical closeness that defines it is taken away. And you mentioned that your first observation is a positive one, quote, that the pandemic and lockdown have put the politics of everyday life on the agenda around the world like never before. Public health and care work have been front and center, but issues like aging, 
housing inequality, mourning and funeral rights, food security, education, culture, transport, mental health, and work-life balance have also generated broad public debate. To what extent are what you call politics of everyday life? To what extent is the focus on social reproduction? How much is that a challenge to power in and of itself? Is just changing our focus to a politics of everyday life transformative in and of itself? I think the first thing to say for a bit of context is that for the last three years, or you could even say eight years, but definitely the last three years in Spain, the entire public, uh, well, political agenda and all of the elections have been focused on the issue of Catalan independence and all of the uh, related national debates. So it's a, it's a time where it's been very difficult to even talk about um, the public health system or talk about schools or talk about uh, mental health or basically any other issue because the agenda has been completely monopolized by the national question. And similarly in the UK, which is where I'm originally from, if anyone's wondering about the accent, um, the debate's been all about Brexit, right? So suddenly we're talking about um, you know, really simple things like uh, who's going to look after our grandparents? Who's going to look after our children? Uh, if we're in lockdown, and the lockdown in Spain was really, really strict. I mean, you weren't even allowed to go out for a walk for for five weeks. You know, what kind of housing conditions are you living in? Have we got families, entire families living in a single room um, with no outdoor space? And so, yeah, I think it, it's, I mean, we're, of course, everything's relative, but it's completely transformative, especially when those issues have been completely um, marginalized from the agenda for um, for so long. So obviously we're talking about them in very extreme conditions, but that really is kind of bringing to light uh, a lot of the cuts that have been made over the last decade. Um, the fact that, for example, in Spain, um, elderly care homes have been privatized. Um, so, so a lot of these issues are really uh, being talked about seriously for the first time in a, in a while, at least. I just remembered that the last time you were on December 2016, after the show, a couple days later, I was so our studio's in a space above a bar downstairs, and I was in the bar downstairs, and I was talking to a guy from Catalan, Catalonia, and he was a Catalan nationalist, and I said, "What do you think?" <laughs> so, what do you think of the people in Barcelona and Camus? And this is what he said: "They think they're so smart." <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that you would really like that, so I just wanted to share that with you. So is what you call the politics of everyday life just politics on a local scale? And are, are, is that all part of municipalism? Is municipalism, because I, I want to make sure people understand the, the differences, is municipalism more than just localism? God, I'm, I'm still recovering from like that devastating <laughs> insult. <laughs> they think they're so smart. I thought it was so great. I'm traumatized. Um... <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> Uh, that's that's really cutting. Um, okay, so what, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> so, uh, is municipalism more than localism? I just want to make sure people understand that it's not. Is it more than uh, localism? I yeah. I mean, municipalism has a very um, deep ideological 
component, uh, I'm, like I said before, it can't, it's not just progressive local government or it's not even just uh, local politics. Um, it's got a deep uh, ecological base as well. Um, I mean, the, the main theorist of um, of municipalism is uh, an American, actually, Murray Bookchin. And he talked about how municipalism could be a way of uh, breaking down all sorts of uh, hierarchies, both the hierarchy of humans with nature, but also within human society, the domination of men over women, the old over the young, um, different social classes. So it's a strategy through, um, in its kind of ideal form of um, in-person assemblies where everyone brings their own uh, knowledge and experience to the table um, as equals, listens to each other, empathizes with one another, um, and actually kind of starts to build a conception of the common good. Um, so yeah, it's it's about transforming also um, ourselves through these collective processes so that we can become um, more empowered but in a, in a kind of collective and individual sense and you, i'm sure that really that exp explanation would really prove your friend's point or you'd find it quite funny but um <laughs> i'm trying to explain um murray bookchin's ideas i don't claim them as my own yeah definitely so uh you also um uh, you write that as a society we are recognizing that the politics of daily life municipalist politics is the foundation of our individual and collective well-being. If municipalism prioritizes a community's well-being, what do you think is prioritized before municipalism was put into place in Barcelona? What do you think is prioritized in your typical global capitalist neoliberal city? Well, I should say that what we're doing in Barcelona, we identify as municipalists, but we're not doing the pure form of direct democracy, um, taking every decision in an assembly that Murray Bookchin imagined. We're doing a kind of proto-municipalist experiment where we're broadening out uh, participation, creating new forms of participation, um, and you know, kind of moving towards his municipalist horizon, let's say. Um, but I mean, the, one of the big differences is is the role of um, of corporations, basically. So um, what we're trying to do is um, empower citizens and disempower the big corporations that are in our city, like Airbnb, um, and make sure that they at least have to play by the same rules of the game as everyone else who wants to influence city policy, right? Because when we came into power, what the big companies in the city would do is they'd just call up uh, whoever was the councillor responsible for whatever issue they were um, interested in and say, you know, I want this policy to be changed this way. And that would be it. And um, when we came along, they didn't have any of our telephone numbers. And when they did manage to uh, get through to us, our response was, you can go through the front door like everyone else. Um so I think that would be uh, a big thing. So uh, why are there difficulties right now when it comes to municipalism during the pandemic? Why can't you just do, as you call it, uh, you know, this kind of telemunicipalism where you can telecommute, where you can communicate with each other via virtual reality? Why is that a hindrance uniquely to municipalism? 
Well, firstly, that has been happening. So both people in City Hall and social movements and um, us in Barcelona in Comun, we've all been working as well as we can through digital tools and video calls and all of the rest of it. And we have even seen some advantages where people who couldn't come to physical meet, like in-person meetings have been able to participate more. And I think the the renters union um, has found a similar um found us have had a similar experience um so so i think you know you can get you can do some municipalist politics um at a distance but because like i said before there's a there's a part of it that's about community building and about um understanding one another that means that it's not just um well we'll come together we'll um have our debates about whether we should do this or that and then we'll decide and then we'll log off there's a part that's about the social side of it and the seeing each other and the, the facial expressions and the social interactions that happen in these spaces and there's also the part of um of public uh, the use of public space right which is really important in terms of um bringing in new people um, because it's a space where you come into contact with all sorts of um, people who live in the city. And it's a place where we protest and we share these ideas that we're having together and we bring in new people and we break out of that either individual isolation or political isolation. And we keep kind of, you know, pushing forward our agenda uh, in the wider community. And that's what really um, I've noticed over the last few months has has really been missing. Do you think that the future of municipalism, you know, despite what it's missing right now, might even be more inclusive with not only face-to-face meetings in the future, but also telemunicipalism as well. Do you think that this could mean uh, an expansion of municipalism once things can get back to whatever they're going to get back to? Definitely. I can really see now that we have to move towards some sort of mixed format, because for everyone who you uh, exclude by having in-person meetings because they don't get off work on early enough or they have kids to take care of or whatever um there's somebody who you can include because um they uh, maybe i've got <laughs> i've got myself in a bit of a twist but there are people who that who need the digital form for, format to participate and there's people who uh, don't have the, the digital skills or the digital tools to participate and so if we can use both at the same time and have a physical assembly with people connecting in from a distance, I think we'll be able to really um, maximize the, the participation. And it could be in the medium to long term, um, actually um, pretty powerful. And you quote, again, uh, the municipalist philosopher Murray Bookchin saying that uh, he defended the capacity of unmediated face-to-face politics to humanize humanity. How, in your opinion, do face-to-face politics humanize humanity? Because far too often what we're shown here in the U.S. and the news media is a very confrontational politics when it comes to citizens engaging with county boards or city councils. So how do face-to-face politics humanize humanity other than to reveal that Humanity can be pretty frightening. <laughs> um, I think it has a lot to do with with what I was talking about before about about um, about empathy. That when you actually listen to people, I mean, anyone who's done um, 
door-to-door canvassing in the US will know this. Uh, we we did uh, door-to-door here f- for the first time last year. And it's the same idea. It's like when you actually go and listen to people, uh, you get beyond even people you disagree with um, radically sometimes. And you actually listen to them and you engage on a one-to-one or you know a small group level even if you don't agree with their conclusion, you can start to understand how they got there. Um, And I think we all know how um, there's a kind of neighborhood identity and solidarity that goes beyond traditional left, right or partisan lines, right? If there's like a bus route that doesn't work, everyone can agree on on that. Sounds really banal, but it's a first step. Um, And these kind of uh, very concrete local um, issues, uh, plus the interaction that allows us to understand each other is what can um, get us beyond this kind of noisy, polarizing uh, media kind of um, caricature of, of what politics is, because that's not what politics is about. It's not about these um, fake battles. It's about people deciding, uh, coming together, talking to one another, um, expressing their needs, their problems, their desires, and then building something together around that. You write that the suspension of individual freedoms, individual freedoms and the introduction of surveillance and control measures under the state of alarm are contrary to municipalism's emancipatory agenda. It is important to ensure that these measures that are on a national level right now do not become permanent and that the introduction of tools that breach human rights like the so-called immunity passport is resisted. What is the likelihood that these measures will become permanent? And do you think that there's any less likelihood that they will become permanent because of the results of last November's election, when we saw the first coalition to be formed since the Second Republic of the 1930s, made up of the Spanish Social Workers Party and Unidas Podemos or the United Left? Do you have any feeling uh, that these uh, the state of emergency or state of exception will not last uh, because of the new government that took power last November? Well, like I said before, the, the lockdown in Spain was really strict and it was strictly enforced by by the police everywhere. So you weren't allowed to go out unless you were an essential worker or going to the supermarket and you would be stopped by the police and checked. And... Um, and there was also a certain level of like um, social control, right? So people, uh, they called them uh, like balcony Nazis, but um, in Spanish, they um, like people who were looked out of their balconies and saw people in the street and be like, why, why are you out? You know, this kind of social um, control. Um, officially, the 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 state of emergent the state of alarm i think it's it was called um has been lifted but some restrictions have been kept under a different legal uh model um i mean obviously it's more reassuring that there's a left government in power than if uh, there'd been a coalition with the far right in power that's that's slightly reassuring but i think actually mm, making sure that we win back all of our rights and freedoms will depend on uh, social um, public pressure. And that's why the kind of 
mutual judging and mistrust that there is about, you know, who's wearing a mask and who's not and who's far enough away from who is a bit worrying because, you know, you see people, they're not um, necessarily um, pushing the government to uh, control people less, uh, at least yet. So, um, so there is, there is a worry when people internalize those, those kind of restrictions over the most kind of intimate um, parts of um, daily life and, and the kind of most basic, uh, freedom. So we'll have to see, but I think the fact there's a left government helps, but, but it's not enough because all governments want more power, really. I mean, let's be honest. How much of a fear then is there that state power will use the pandemic to crush municipalism? I guess more importantly, I guess, is could state power crush municipalism in Barcelona? Well, it's not so much about it actively crushing municipalism. It's more about um, whether it's going to um, support it uh, or let it die. In, in the sense that um, Barcelona, for example, has had um, the demand for social services like food, um, extra food aid or housing support has doubled over the, t- the pandemic. Uh, and about 20% of those people who've been coming and saying, I haven't got enough, any food to give my kids, are people who have never had any contact with social services before. And so that's left us with a 300 million euro deficit in our budget and the central government which like I said is it's it's the same political coalition basically that we have in in city hall the socialists and and the the united left um the the question is whether they're going to um help municipal finances allow us to uh, go into debt, give us uh, more state um, financial support, um, because if not, um, then the cities are on the front line of of dealing with the the economic emergency. But um, but there won't be much they can actually do. So it's a kind of wait and see on that one. Well, you also write that grassroots movements in Barcelona have responded with impressive speed and strength to the pandemic. This eminently action-oriented response has included the street vendors union sewing face masks, the maker community using their 3D printers to produce hospital-grade PPI, PPE here in the States, and emergency crowdfunding initiatives for sex workers, undocumented residents, and social economy businesses. Similarly, community-managed and occupied spaces have become hubs for food donation and distribution, and new mutual aid groups have sprung up up across the city to offer mutual emotional and practical support between neighbors. How much better uh, prepared was Barcelona for the pandemic because it had already embraced embraced municipalism? Well, like I said before, Barcelona has this very um, well-organized, tightly knit kind of um, network of of social movements and cooperatives and uh, neighborhood associations so and like and that was previous to um to our winning the election in 2015 um and obviously it was a help but it's it's something that's been there for decades and and definitely i think that um that that kind of citizen organization, um, it's always there when the, the chips are down. It's the same when there was the um, the um, 
non-legal unofficial referendum back in back in October 2017 or um, in the 2008 financial crisis when the power housing movement started to uh, take direct action to stop evictions um, it's it's definitely uh, uh, support but I would also say that in other cities in London for example um, where my family lives where there aren't that there isn't that same kind of network of social movements um, on my parents street they've uh, got a WhatsApp group of mutual aid for the first time. So we could see that thanks to the pandemic in cities where maybe they didn't have those kind of neighbourhood support networks, that um, in the future from those networks that have been set up to deal with the pandemic, we might see other political uh, projects emerging. Just a couple more questions for you, Kate. There's something that just has been really irritating me about media coverage here in the United States about the framing of our political debate here in the United States. Uh, the word political is consistently used in the media when what is meant is partisan, that an issue has Republicans and conservatives on one side and Democrats and liberals on the other. So when we're talking about the politics of everyday life, when you and I are having this conversation and people see the word politics as being synonymous with uh, as being synon- or not or being separate from partisanism what is missed in our understanding of how the pandemic has politicized everyday life when the word politics is used only to mean partisan what do we lose in our understanding of politics and what it means to be political when it's only used in a context of being synonymous with partisan Hmm. Well, I think the the masterclass on this issue was given to us by the feminist movement, wasn't it? With the the personal is is political. Um, when when we talk about politicizing something, um, we're not talking about um, making it stand for election uh, un, as under you know as red or blue. Uh, we're talking about um, firstly. Um, being able to talk about it in the public sphere and it not being some kind of just private personal issue. Secondly, realizing that it's not just a personal problem that I have, you know, if I can't pay my mortgage or my husband's beating me up or um, I can't get a job or whatever it is, um, I'm going to talk about it with other people, uh, probably the people who live around me, my neighbors. And I'm going to realize that there's all these other people who are in the same situation and we're going to talk about it and then we're probably going to realize that there's some reason why, because there's probably some uh, public policy that's making it happen or there's pro- or it's probably being ignored or there might be some corporation doing some bad practices. And we're going to identify what needs to be changed to solve all of our problems. So that to me is what um, what politics is. Does one uh, just a couple more questions for you? I was just thinking about this before we let you go. Does municipalism has municipalism in Barcelona changed the public's relationship with the police, considering the worldwide protests that are happening in the wake of the murder of George Floyd? Uh, to what extent does municipalism have any impact on relations with police? Hmm, that's a well. The first thing that I'd like your listeners to know is that the basically the first um, big. Uh, public protest here um, since the beginning of the pandemic was actually in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Um, So 
I think it's really interesting how that movement is really becoming global. And I think it's it's quite um, significant that that was the first one. Um, in terms of the relationship with the police, it's actually one of the most difficult things for a radical left participatory um, government to manage um, because usually if, if you're a left organization or a citizen-led organization, you usually have an idea of like, um, you know, what your um, ideal economic model would be like or how you want your earning urban planning to be done or what you want your, you know, what feminist policies you want. But if you ask most people on the left what they want to do with the police, um, you know, often they don't have an answer. <laughs> and I think actually the Black Lives Matter movement is really interesting because it's actually starting to um, imagine kind of new uh, new utopias of, of how we could think about security and, um, you know, local self-management that isn't just uh, based on the use of force. So... Um, so yeah, I think that's a whole new terrain for municipalism to explore over over the coming years, and I really hope that that can happen both here and elsewhere. One last question for you, Kate. We've been speaking with Kate Shea Baird. She wrote the Roar magazine article, Lessons for the Pandemic for the Municipalists in Spain. This is Kate's third appearance on This Is Hell. You can find her past two interviews, as well as this one, at thisishell.com. Kate works as a political advisor at the province of Barcelona. She currently serves on the executive committee of Barcelona in Camus, the citizen platform currently governing Barcelona, where she is responsible for communications and participation. You can find out more about Kate at Kate Shea Baird wordpress.com you can follow her on twitter at kate sb and you can follow barcelona and Camus on twitter at b c n e n Camus. b c n e n Camus. ah just look it up one last question for you kate you you it, might want to follow our english account which it, is b commune global Okay. which might be a bit more understandable for your listeners. Yes, it might be. Be coming. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Uh, one last question for you, Kate. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. So you point out that the climate movement has been had been building momentum towards global street action this spring for over a year, but it's seen its message sidelined from the public agenda once more due to the global pandemic. The most pressing issue of our time, people, is very easy to argue, is climate change. How can municipalism, focusing on power resting on the local scale, fight global crises like climate change? How can something locally focused have an impact on a global issue? Well, I think probably the main thing is um, actually just starting to uh, to do things differently, um, even on a smaller scale, because then it can be scaled up or scaled out. Uh, one thing we've done in, in Barcelona is we've set up a municipal uh, energy company, uh, we're sub, um, giving public subsidies to um, initiatives that reduce uh, greenhouse emissions. So it's actually just through action. Okay, you're not going to solve climate change from one individual city, but you're going to uh, show that there are alternative policies uh, that can be implemented uh, and you're going to start the work uh, that's needed so urgently. Kate, it is a pleasure having you back on the show. I promise it will be 
far shorter than three years and seven months from now that we have you back on the show. I hope so. It would be lovely to come back soon. (laughs) All right. I'm going to be annoying you in email, so I look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On June 29th, 1979, 41 years ago today, Monday, while touring in support of his solo album, Thanks, I'll Eat It Here, Little Feet frontman, singer-songwriter, and guitarist Lowell George collapsed and died in his hotel room a few days after eating an entire large pizza with everything on it in one sitting. Pizza killed a rock star, which is sad, but hey, at least Lowell George didn't die from drugs, right? An autopsy later determined that his heart attack had been brought on by obesity and an overdose of cocaine. Okay, it was drugs. The drugs of food and cocaine. George's death occurred on the anniversary of the 1975 death of folk singer Tim Buckley from a heroin overdose, the 1967 death of actress Jane Mansfield in a gruesome car accident where she was decapitated, and the 1964 death of jazz musician Eric Dolphy in Berlin in what the local doctors mistakenly took for a drug overdose but was actually an undiagnosed diabetic coma because, hey, who knew German doctors in the 60s Pretty freaking racist. June 29th, not a good day for 1960s and 1970s celebrities. Luckily for me, it's not the 1960s or 1970s, and I am not a celebrity. In Rotten History, July 1st, 1885, 135 years ago this Wednesday, that evil incarnate, King Leopold II of Belgium, established himself as absolute ruler of a vast colony in Central Africa to be known as the so-called Congo Free State free in the sense that Leopold, free of any pretense of democratic or constitutional restraint, ruled it not as Belgian territory, but as his own personal possession, recognized as such by the United States and by European powers. So following the U.S. Civil War, which ended slavery in the United States, President Grover Cleveland, a Democrat, of course, because back then Democrats were even more racist than Republicans, go figure, recognized King Leopold's free Congo, which pretty much enslaved Congo. After creating an effective monopoly on products like rubber and ivory, Leopold set up a tyranny that was brutal even in comparison to other European colonies in Africa at the time, and that's a pretty high bar, and a pretty freaking brutal bar as well. Millions of people were starved, forced to work under miserable conditions, and subjected to horrific discipline. Leopold's compliant troops routinely cut off the hands or ears of workers, including children who failed to produce their expected rubber quotas. Millions more were simply murdered in what amounted to a genocide on the dimensions of the Nazi Holocaust. Not until 1908, shortly before Leopold's death, did his personal rule of the resource-rich colony come to an end. The Belgian government took over and held control until the Democratic Republic of Congo gained independence in 1960. The new Congo's first president, Patrice Lumumba, was quickly assassinated and replaced by the U.S.-backed dictator Joseph Mobutu because if there's one thing Imperial America hates, it's when a former slave colony wins independence and picks their own new leader without that leader not being a puppet of the United States. Just three weeks ago in Brussels, a major statue honoring King Leopold II, total prick, finally torn down. 
This just in, President Trump has announced U.S. troops will be deployed to Brussels immediately to protect all statues of historical importance that memorialize the really terrific histories of brutal dictators, monarchs, and slave owners. Finally, in Rotten History, July 3rd, 1844, 176 years ago this Friday, three Icelandic sailors arrived at the tiny island of Eldi, essentially a giant rock, rising some 250 feet above the Atlantic, just off the southwestern coast of Iceland. Sounds good so far, pretty idyllic, but this is rotten history. So prepare yourself. The island had gained attention for being the last known sanctuary yikes, of the Great Auk, a flightless bird of the far north that stood some three feet tall and had once inhabited rocky coasts across the Arctic and as far south as Massachusetts and France. And you gotta wonder why any species of flightless bird exists for much longer than a generation or two. I mean, for a bird, flight is kind of its whole thing. The weirdest part about flightless birds or ratites, including the ostrich, the rhea, the cassowary, the kiwi, and the emu, is they're all birds that have lost the ability to fly. Lost the ability to fly. Which makes you wonder about the first offspring of the first emu who lost that ability. Hey, Dad, Mom, can you show me how to fly today? Sorry, child, we cannot because somehow your father lost the ability to fly. Though the great auk wasn't really related to the penguins of the Antarctic, it superficially resembled those southern birds, mostly black with a white breast and prominent beak. It waddled clumsily on land, but could shoot through the water like a torpedo in its endless hunt for fish. And again, three feet tall. But the great auk was itself a favored meal of hungry sailors, and by 1844, scientists were well aware that the species was disappearing. The growing scarcity had caused a demand for specimens among museums and collectors who were willing to pay high prices, which likely built up demand and quickened the demise and extinction of the great auk. A small group of the birds had been discovered living on the island of Eldi, but when the Icelandic sailors arrived there, they found just one nesting pair left. Incubating, in, incubating a single egg. The men grabbed the birds, wrestled them down to the ground, and strangled them to death. In the struggle, one man accidentally stepped on the egg, smashing it. In this way, the great auk was rendered extinct. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. Alex, what's coming up on this week's show? Uh, can you just tell me that story about that guy who killed himself fighting a pizza again? Uh. <laughs> Really identifying with that part. Uh, Tuesday, that's tomorrow, Jennifer L. Holland will be on to talk about her book, Tiny You, A Western History of the Anti-Abortion Movement. Sweet. And then on Wednesday, we got Kate Levine and Joanna Schwartz are going to be on to talk about their Boston Review article, Hold Prosecutors Accountable too. And uh, still working on Thursday, and Jeffy. And Jeffy on Thursday as well. Also on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what the prize is going to be. It's going to be a medical mask again, I'm telling you. And uh, we'll read some of your responses to this week's question from hell. Where, and you can leave your response to the question from hell at our p- Facebook page, on Twitter, email it to us. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Kate Shea Baird for returning to This Is Hell. Thanks, Alex, for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Always special thanks to Theron and Richard for all of the work that they have done on the show. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>